City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Production Welcome to the American Theatre Wings Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in the 29th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of the exciting Broadway musical, Mamma Mia, with the members of its creative and production teams who will follow the show from its beginning as a work for the stage through to the current production now on Broadway. Although we are holding this seminar, not long after the tragedy of September 11th, we have asked our panelists not to dwell on those horrible events as we look to the future. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. I think this seminar will give us all great insight into the creative process that leads to the long road to Broadway. And now, with great pleasure, let me introduce our moderator of this seminar, a veteran Broadway producer himself and President of the American Theatre Wing. Roy A. Sumner. Roy. Thank you, Isabel. I'm very pleased to uh, be uh, amongst this uh, prestigious panel. Let me introduce them to you. These are the creators of Mamma Mia. On my far right is Bjorn Ulveus, uh, who is the uh, co-author of the book of the music and the lyrics and a producer of Mamma Mia. Next to me is Philida Lloyd. Philida is the director, and on my left is Judy Kramer, producer of Mamma Mia. Next to her is Adrian Brian Brown, who's the publicist. And next to him is Katherine Johnson, who wrote the book of this juggernaut that is happening in New York and around the world. Uh, the logical, as um, Isabel Stevenson said, we're going to trace this from its beginning. I want to go, in fact, more than just at the beginning of it as a Broadway show. I wanted to go back to the beginning of Mamma Mia, as, uh, and I think we start the question with uh, Bjorn. Would you tell us the very birth of Mamma Mia? Well, 25 years ago when I... Well, some of these songs, I didn't have any idea that they had a theatrical quality in any way. So, at that time, we were just trying to write as good pop songs as possible. And uh, this was noticed by Judy, who can actually tell you the birth, because she came up with the idea. Um, <laughs> what a responsibility. Um, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I'd always loved uh, ABBA's songs, and in 1982 I met uh, Benny Anderson and Bjorn Jovez and uh, had the pleasure and fun of working with them as their executive producer on chess. And had always thought there was something very theatrical about those songs. Um, and, but it was far too early then for Bjorn and Benny to even consider returning to the ABBA music. ABBA, as a band, had disbanded in 1982. So it was about 1989 when I seriously approached them. And they were very encouraging and smiled sweetly and possibly thought I was a little mad. 
And they had other projects. They were working on their very huge project, Christina Musical in Sweden. And I kind of toyed with several ideas. It started off as a film television idea. And then probably about five years ago, I said, you know, let's really go for this and do it as a stage musical. And uh, Benny and Bjorn said, well, if you can find the right story, yes, we'll seriously think about it. So Could I interrupt you just yeah. there? Uh, for the benefit of anybody who might have been living in a cave for the last 30 years, <laughs> uh, I'd like to, we mentioned Abba, and I, that's really where I'd like you to begin. And we'll, we'll oh, hold it now uh, okay. for the last five years. But uh, talk, tell about ABBA and... ABBA uh, is a, a pop group from Sweden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> four members. Two couples we used to be, actually. Although we got divorced right in the middle of our career. But uh, we won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974. And that uh, overnight sort of opened the world to us. And we had a career between, I would say, 73 and 81 when we split up because we felt the energy has gone out of the group. Uh, and Betty and I wanted to go into the theatre anyway. Um, we have people say, I don't know whether this is true, but they say that we've sold 350 million records. Have you been paid for them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think for all of them. <laughs> but that, that's where we are. And, and during, during uh, those seven, eight years, that was our career. We wrote um, about 12 songs a year. And I guess had about two or three hits a year as well, uh, all around the world. So that's where well, well, Judy's sort of base comes from. But you and Benny are the two Bs. Yes. In, in your Anietta and Annie Fried are the two A's. And the other artists were, were, and you did the music and lyrics, and they did the vocals. From yeah, the absolutely. They, right. they were sing the singers. Right. We were the writers and producers. Did you sing? In the, the didn't group. you sing in the group? I, I did sing too. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 I used to get one track on each album. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you're a Swedish group, and is it, does, do all the rock groups sing in, uh, in English in, uh, in Sweden? I mean it was very natural for us to do that, because um, <coughs> having been exposed to American and English rock for such a long time, uh, you, we realized that uh, English is, is the language of pop. And in, in order to reach outside Sweden anyway, Swedish is such a funny language. Mm. We had to do it in English. Do you want to hear some Swedish? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you say Abba in Swedish? <laughs> Abba. <laughs> we all know some Swedish now. Oh, yeah. Um, I That's think all that you need to know. <laughs> I think now I'll let you go back to your story about uh, having selected from uh, the ABBA uh, the where you went from there. Having starved for many years. Um, <laughs> so, well, many years went by um, and uh, still encouragement from Sweden, but still no commitment. Um, <laughs> <coughs> and I had a very sad life sitting on my apartment floor listening to ABBA songs endlessly. Um, it was about five years. And there are about 90, I think, even though we use 22. Um, but I knew, I mean, they, uh, Winner Takes It All, which is my favorite song, was the big inspiration to me. Um, and I knew that was a very theatrical song in its own right. <coughs> also, you know, Bjorn wrote 
great lyrics that were very accessible and revealed relationships that I was kind of fascinated to know the stories behind. Um, <coughs> I also felt that the songs fell into two generations. There were the younger ABBA songs, the kind of Honey Honeys and the Dancing Queens and the more mature emotional songs like Winner Takes It All and Knowing Me, Knowing You that <coughs> ABBA wrote, Bjorn wrote, near the end of ABBA's life. Um, and with all that information and many years of listening to um, the albums, I then found Katherine Johnson. Um, I had worked with a few other writers who had come up with various ideas, but none of them were right. Uh, so it was about five years ago that I met Catherine. How fortunate for us all. Um, yes, and you knew from the moment I met her <laughs> she was right. <laughs> Um, so take, we took it from there, and Catherine. Uh, well, Catherine, you're a writer. You 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 have a lot of writing credits. I yes, no no musicals. I mean, this, I had a phone call from my agent. It was um, just after New Year's Day, and he asked. He said, "I've been talking to a producer called Judy Kramer, um, and she needs somebody to write a musical based around the songs of ABBA." And I said, "It's me. I have to do it." And then I came off the phone and thought, I can't, I can't think of anything. But he arranged for me to meet Judy. And um, my work previously has always been in fringe theatre. Um, and it's sort of four actors and one set and a budget of £250, <laughs> which is like $500. Um, so I thought Judy was going to be some kind of, you know, impresario chewing a cigar. And guess what? She was. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it was one of those meetings. We hit it off immediately, um, and um, very serendipitously, we're all the same age, Judy, Philly, and I. So we're kind of we were all coming from the same place, as it were. And Judy talked about some of the things she's just said about the generational stuff. And um, as we sat there chatting, the, the story that we have now um, actually started to form this idea about doing a mother-daughter relationship, and then from somewhere out of the blue came the three dads, who is my dad's story. So when did you meet, when did you meet the Abba, or when did you meet uh, <laughs> Bjorn? Well, Judy said, you know, they need to be convinced. You have to convince Benny and Bjorn before we can go any further with this. So she loved the story, but she said, go away and write me up a treatment. So I wrote something, I don't know what, it's about five pages, something was like that. Was it that much? Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, it's probably more than that. Um, and she sent it off to Bjorn and came back to me on the phone and said, yes, he loves it, but he wants to meet you. So I think it was about a month later that I had my first meeting with Bjorn and, oh, I was so scared. I thought you'd be really scary. It was a great meeting. I mean, I was yeah. convinced. And right after that, funnily enough, I, I went to see a very tired version of Grease with my daughters in London. And then and there, I understood the potential of uh, Mamma Mia, you know, family-oriented entertainment, uplifting, funny, uh, with lots of hits in it. So um, yeah. <laughs> I was convinced 100%. So that's where we really started off. Mm. Well, at what point then, then did Felida join the team? Felida? About we had to get, well, we had to, uh, Catherine had to write the first draft after so her you five pages. In very <laughs> so uh, you, you didn't involve in, in, in any of the initial writing. You were not no. involved in coaching it in any way. 
It was really being shaped by you and Yes, shaped, but then, yes, Philoda was very involved once we got to first and second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh draft. Characters came and went. After, well then, after Bjorn and Benny seemed to like what they had heard, then you set out to write the piece. Yeah. Well, I think the important question, we always ask the composers and lyricists, which came first? The music of the lyrics. <laughs> they always answer us. They always answer us. Well, it depends. Sometimes music, sometimes lyrics. And so we're not going to ask you which came first in Abba's no, creation, no, no. music or lyrics. But we, I think we should know which came first, the book or the score. Well, the score, because the score was 25 years no, old. No, no. Yeah. But I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Did you select the, the 22 numbers that are in the... In yeah, it had to First, be or did you write the book first? No, no, because it had to, I mean... I read the lyrics first. Judy gave me the collected lyrics, and I. A hundred songs. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. we had. Uh, we knew there was that a I few weren't going to make it <laughs> <laughs> quite early <laughs> on the final. Verse. Quite a few were forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine had um, two challenges really. I mean, her main challenge was the story had to be more important than the music and the songs. Um, and I'd worked for many years as a script editor in film and television, and knew that it had to, the script had to be worked on in that way, which I don't think theatre book musicals always are, because uh, you you're writing the music and the lyrics at the same time. You don't have the time to concentrate on the story in the book. So Catherine's big challenge was to concentrate. I mean, her, the story had to be more important than the music and the lyrics, and she couldn't change the lyrics. So she couldn't adapt any lyrics to suit her story. She had to work... So Within every that. lyric we hear, every lyric we hear now, is it precisely as you wrote it? Yeah, well, a few little details, but uh, details yeah. there that really for joke reasons aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. To, to remind the audience that um, we might have made changes if we'd wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a challenge <laughs> to Bjorn as well, because he was itching to change his lyrics. Yeah, we did have to sit on him in rehearsals all the time and say, no, 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 keep it that way. Well, that, that theory obviously proved uh, uh, successful because you wouldn't be where you are. Mm. Uh, necessarily, you may have improved on it, uh, but yeah. uh, you did well by but staying true to it. I, mean, and I thought that was the challenge of the whole thing, now what Judy just said the ground rules. You cannot change the words. Mm. Uh, you have a hundred songs to choose from. You can choose any of these, almost, yeah. <laughs> except the forbidden ones. Why couldn't you change your lyrics? Because... We might as well have written a new musical yes, then, exactly. yeah. That was the experiment. And also Would it be possible to do it? I mean... The risk of sounding um, contentious, actually, it's, there are places where the lyrics don't quite fit the situation, and that's part of the tension and thrill of the show. Um, sometimes there's a really big gap between the lyrics and the situation, and that's great fun. Other times the gap is closed completely and you think, my God, this song must have been written mm -hmm. for the scene. How could it possibly have been written 25 years ago? And it's just playing with that dynamic that well, is I think, the essence I think of the one beat. of the songs, in, uh, Dancing Queen, for example, which I think you may not feel it's the most popular, but I think that's certainly one that gets the most reaction. That's one that maybe it's a good idea if we were trying to take a look at a, a, a segment of, of that so uh, we know what we're talking about. Dancing Queen is a, plays a, a prominent role in, in the production, and I think that uh, uh, you can tell us later if there's anything that uh, has been changed in Dancing Queen. Well, we'll let's Maybe, uh, maybe we can just look at uh, about a minute of it. 
uh, if uh, we can cue that up. And uh, we'll see if, if uh, it fits, the, the, if you can say how it fit in, then I want to see how you can tell us how it fit <laughs> in. <into the laughs> That's the no book, fair. And, uh, particularly that one. And No question about uh, how that can appeal to an audience. Now, do you want to tell us now? First of all, those those are exactly the same lyrics that. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, how did that fit into the? Uh, how did you get that to fit into the book? Well, Dancing Queen was one of the more difficult ones because I think some of the more emotional numbers, like Winner Takes It All, um, that was that just feels so organically right in the piece where it comes. But with Dancing Queen. Um, there didn't seem to be a way that I could actually make the characters go into a moment that was, was very much of the now and of the moment. Um, so what we thought about doing there was, was kind of using it more as a sort of a memory and a nostalgic moment. So we have these three women who used to sing in a band that did ABBA covers, which is kind of a good way of getting a few other songs in there. And um, they're having a moment in the bedroom together and everything's tensions high, very fraught. Donna, the mother, has just made a discovery that's you know, completely blown her mind. And her friends are trying to cheer her up. And <coughs> basically, they're just saying to her, look, come on, you know, just remember what you used to be like. And then they do go into the bedroom scene number of doing Dancing Queen. And we thought we'd do it very much as girls do at home, picking up your hairbrush, singing into the mirror, so that it was kind of... It's a very theatrical number, but it's sort of done in a very intimate, enclosed way. I mean, Philida really is the one to talk about the staging of this. I just put, that's where the song goes, and Philida was the one who made it work. It that does. clip actually is not the, the scene from the show. I know, that's the point. Um, the, the scene from the show is a lot more um, chaotic, homespun, and, you know, most people in the audience, certainly our generations, uh, the 40-somethings, you know, memory of leaping around the bedroom, you know, singing into a deodorant, rock songs, going mad and jumping on the bed with your girlfriends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> still doing it. Women <laughs> jumping. <laughs> I say women jumping out of the bed with their yeah. girlfriends? Yes, okay. Um, and in a way there, the gap is between the, these, the homespunness of these women and um, the audience memory of, of, you know, the perfection of ABBA themselves. That's the fun of it. Well, the inventiveness of that number where, where they're using 
um, scuba diving and, and, and brushes and, and everything. Is that all your, is it's that your not, contribution? What, what we did was we gave the original London cast um, two suitcases. One of the women we decided was the kind of person who came on holiday with a snorkel. And this is very much in Catherine's writing that she was Miss Outward Bound and, um, <laughs> you know, Full, her suitcase was full of books and sporting equipment. And the other one was Prada and Versace and more like our producer. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, we gave the, the actors, the actresses, two suitcases. One contained one set of props, one contained the other. And we then said, right, improvise the song using the contents of your suitcase. And what we've done all around the world is to develop that. It's <coughs> changed everywhere we've gone because, you know, the American suitcase may contain slightly different things to the, the London or the Australian <laughs> suitcase. Uh, well, can we pick up the thread now? We've got, uh, we've got a, uh, Catherine busy doing a script. And then tell us how it then got the next, to its next step. Um, <coughs> well, the next step really was to find the director, to find Philida. Um, and I knew it had to be a top, top director, or Benny and Bjorn could, you know, I knew that uh, Benny and Bjorn could get out of this at any moment, <laughs> and <laughs> my life <laughs> depended on this. <laughs> so, got Catherine, <laughs> and um, actually, I knew Phyllida's work, I knew very well of her work, and was a big fan, and loved uh, Six Degrees of Separation that she'd done at the Royal Court in London and uh, Threepenny Opera at the Donmar Warehouse. Um, but I had no idea, because she's very well known for classical theatre and opera, that she <laughs> would be interested in doing a commercial musical. Um, but I was working with her agent at the time on a film, who one of her clients was on the film, and she said, have you ever thought of Phila Lloyd?" And I said, well, you know, really. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And we met, and Catherine at that stage had, had done the f completed the first draft, and we kind of, you know, were work it was a wor very much a work in progress. And uh, I remember meeting with Philida, with my fingers crossed and very nervous, thinking she'll tell me to go and take a hike. Um, and I know she'd just honed up on her ABBA songs. <laughs> and um, I remember it. Well, it, it was four years ago, because I was just about to be 40, Philida was 40, sorry, we're very kind of into age here. <laughs> and I remember it was just before my 40th birthday, and um, I said, well, when will you let us know? And she said, before you're 40. Um, and she did, within a couple of days, and uh, thank goodness she did, really. So then the rest of the team began to fall into place. Right. It wasn't until I had the team in place that I started to raise the money. That was what you were going to ask, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to ask you how much money you raised. Well, first of all, what was your intention, though? You, you, you knew you had uh, a score, and you now had a book, and you'd been fortunate enough to get Philip to agree. Now, you, where were you going to go with this? Uh, you, your background seems to me you, went, you, started, you were a stage manager at one point uh, on Cats. Were you not the original? production stage manager? Um, yes, I was. I was, I was um, Cameron's original stage manager for, for Cats in London, and now he's my landlord because we're in his theatre with Mama Mir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he owes me a lot. 
<laughs> but you had deep roots in the. In I the, have in yes, I've been a state. I trained at the Guildhall School of Music and uh, studied music and opera and stage management, and then went off to work in musicals and opera, doing stage management, and ended up working for Cameron in 1978-79 as an ASM on My Fair Lady in Oklahoma. Back then, and now he's about to do the new production. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Cameron Macintosh for. Uh, for, for anybody right. who happens to have been also living in that same cave. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sir Cameron. And, um, so now you're aiming this show. How did you decide that, uh, to, that it was ready and then you, then you decided to, to capitalize it? Aim for what? I think as soon as, as, soon as everyone was moving forward with, with the book um, and Bjorn was happy with everything and we decided, I decided to start raising the capitalization, but before that we did a workshop, which was a very important and interesting process. That was in April 98. We opened the show in April 99, so it was exactly a year before. Um, and I had started to raise the money. I mean, our main investor is Universal Music, who was then Polygram. So they had, they were interested. Um, they kept saying, oh, wait to the next draft of the script, but we weren't having it. Um, so they came on board about that time, but we also, it was very important that we did this workshop, which was just a creative workshop. It wasn't to raise money, it wasn't to an audience, it was just to put it, to work through the creative process, for Philida to work through the creative pro process, and Catherine, and to present it to the creative team and their agents. And I guess there were a couple of universal <laughs> executives there. Um, and I How think long Phil was that workshop? It was a week. Two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks, Two ten weeks. days. <laughs> yeah. And that's a very brief workshop. Um, uh, it is, standard. but actually Judy had us on a very long, it was a much more um, lengthy and complex process than that, which actually the workshop was, was sort of both the culmination of the first phase and the mm. beginning, wasn't it, of a whole other phase. Yeah. And I really think that one of the keys to the, to the production, apart from obviously the, the people she picked, um, was the fact that she was prepared to take such pains to um, get us to develop the work on yeah. every front. And I remember the designer at one point saying to me, God, how many more bloody workshops are we going to do on this show? As if, you know, the, it's like no stone is being, you know, left unturned to try to get the thing to feel, um, give it, give it strength and structure. And um, because Catherine had had to work so hard to even create the structure, mm. that then the whole process of actually breathing life into the characters was a whole other mm. area, wasn't it? Um, sort of, though I think those things always come together, you know, you can't actually write the, the, the script, the plot, unless the, you know who the characters are and therefore what they might do. But you were working away during that workshop, weren't you? Well, the <laughs> workshop was a, a complete illumination for me because I suddenly realised how wrong I'd got it all. <laughs> so I just went away and rewrote the script again. I'd just got something, a very central um, issue in, in the, of the script, absolutely wrong. And um, it, was, it was helped to have a workshop to see it. And I just spent the whole two weeks thinking, this is dreadful, this is so wrong. It was agony for me. Did but you I solved it. Oh, it was important me. for Bjorn as well because yeah. of how the music then integrated with it. It was the first time you could hear the songs with mm. the story. Mm. 
Uh, <coughs> quite a few were changed from that, of mm. course. A few was, you mean you replaced? Replaced some. with others, yeah. I mean, there was one time, I remember, we, <coughs> we were thinking we've got to open the second half with a bang and we haven't got the right number and we were just sort of getting you to scrabble through your you know, the things that had fallen on the cutting room floor, we were saying, haven't you got a song, a sort of nightmare <laughs> sequence, a sort of, you know, we want to do the yeah. Agnes de Mille <coughs> dream ballet at the beginning of the second half. <laughs> and um, that's when you... And he said, yes. He got one of those, yes. <laughs> and found us under attack. Um, so it was, the thing was constantly on the move, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Right to the wire, really. Did Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> did you use... Uh, 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 cast it, uh, a full cast for that at, uh, in your workshop? What, what size was that? Um, I think we had six people um, and two of them, three of them actually went on to play the leads <coughs> in the London production oh. and in fact they were quite an inspiration, mm. a couple of them were quite an inspiration yeah. weren't they? Uh, I think that's the wonderful thing about workshops uh, when they're creative workshops, when they're not just something that you're bringing in to raise money, when you can get an exchange from all the contributors, <coughs> including the performers. I think that's, that's uh, the original workshop that uh, we know here was with uh, a chorus line, and everybody yeah. contributed to make that. And that was also a very lengthy one, uh, several workshops. But unfortunately, we're not seeing those kinds anymore. We're seeing workshops are more... Uh, Unfortunately, years of, you were very good. That was three years ago. Was it full, full about five years ago? Hmm. But um, uh, now they're, they're purely, uh, it gets difficult and people are using it to raise uh, money. Yes. No, it was important. It was kind of closed and not open to anybody but us, really. Um, and it was a, a good in investment. But still, Beyond and Benny could have pulled out at any moment. <laughs> but it's a very interesting point about workshops, that they are, they're either one thing or they're the other thing. They're either to make to develop the work, or they're just about fixing it in order to present it. Showcasing and it, the a material. massive difference. Mm. And if you're just doing it to showcase the material, you're not moving forward mm. at all. It's critical to actually be free to just demolish, you know, <laughs> things that don't work, mm. and not feel you're you're doing it as some sort of as a presentational thing. Did your relationships strain during the workshops because you were uh, allowing each other to fail if you wanted to? Did well, it put any stress on it? Speaking, it's just been wonderful. But I don't think our relationships have strained at all, have they? All well, certainly time. not now. And uh, you know, no, yeah. but yeah. even then, no, 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 we we yeah, had we a on, we? we had a very you know we had a great creative process really. I mean, everyone enjoyed it. Everyone was busy doing other projects and working on other shows or films, productions. Uh, Bjorn and Benny were busy with Christina and other things. But we did, uh, we did enjoy it, even though I think we've all worked on creative processes that we haven't enjoyed as yeah. much. I always, I always puzzle over um, why some creative processes, uh, regardless of how the, the end product, some of them uh, show great stresses and strains amongst the participants, and others uh, our love fest like, sounds like what yours was, and I, I never, I never found out what is the reason that some work so well and some strain uh, <laughs> relationships. Because there were three women involved, you know. <laughs> 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 I love like that. I think I'm going to keep that as the answer. In a way, I think it's very much because of the women involved here. They're in the majority. And I think that that's the only hit musical ever made with 
where women are in, in a majority when it comes to the creative process. So that's very interesting. Probably so. Probably so. I would like to know who handles the finances of this international corporation <laughs> as you move from country <laughs> to country <laughs> and theater to theater. Who is responsible let's, let's, for that? Let's, let's get us uh, on our feet first, and then we're going to pin Judy down to tell us uh, about all those financials. But we haven't gotten to there yet. We're, we're going to find out one way or the other. Uh, the, uh, uh, but we now have, we now have a, a show ready, and you're ready to raise money. Uh, yes, I just, I mean, finishing on the workshop, it was then that it was another big boost that everyone knew that we must push forward with this. And I also have a co-producer, Richard East, who works with me, who lives in Australia, so he wasn't always in London uh, all the time. Um, but it was then that, you know, he, myself, and Bjorn and Benny, and Philida and all of us went, right, we now have to really get on with it. So we had to find a theatre, which wasn't easy. Um, there was no room at the inn in the West End. <laughs> and actually, it wasn't that easy to sell the project to theatre owners. They kind of thought that we were trying to do an ABBA tribute show or it was the story of ABBA's lives, which, you know, however many times I told them it wasn't, and definitely Benny and Bjorn would never have allowed that. Um, there was no theatre until Cameron Mackintosh offered us. We started auditioning in September 98 and we were almost through with auditions we had no theater and Cameron called because Ragtime had just pulled out of the West End and he offered us the <coughs> Prince Edward theater and we had been thinking of a much smaller theater we've been thinking of a kind of 1200 or 1100 seater and the Prince Edward is a 1650 uh, seater and I had kind of budgeted the show <laughs> and capitalized did it little less than you would for a 1600-seater. So it was a bit of a white-knuckle ride at that time. But we took the Prince Edward, and we'd all, Benny Bjorn and I had worked there with chess, and it's a beautiful theater. So we said goodbye to our contingency and just got on with it. Um, well, Adrian, we're going to let you talk in a no, little I bit. No, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for but that. But <laughs> as, uh, as the publicist, you had nothing yet to publicize yeah, at this point. I'm waiting. Uh, Judy. Uh, did you ever consider uh, opening it somewhere other than in uh, London or other than in England? Had you ever considered? Uh, well, it's uh, funny you should say that because, yes, during the whole kind of three years of us all working together, it started as, you know, yes, maybe a fringe theatre, then maybe out of town in Manchester or maybe in Bristol. Nothing to do with that Catherine coming nice. from Bristol. Yeah. So, yes, and actually it was at the workshop that, it was Philida and Mark Thompson that were like, no, let's just go straight to the West End. <laughs> 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 um, well, that was a confidence in the material, I guess, at that point. You, you felt it was ready to go to the West End. Mm -hmm. Did you have sites eventually for uh, around the world, in, in, in including Broadway, at that point? No, I I'm, Judy may have done, but none of us really. We were very, our, our ambitions were quite modest <laughs> at the beginning. Well, but it's a big jump from a workshop to open immediately at the West End. I think the designer was a crucial part of it. When we were looking at little theatres and bigger theatres, he said, and we were going, my God, can we really jump into the Prince Edward? This is a very intimate domestic show. And he said, take the Prince Edward. You know, I'll make the Prince Edward work. And we suddenly mm -hmm. felt, gosh, his confidence in it was really yeah. central. And it isn't easy, you know, uh, you feel that there's less, less spotlight on you opening out of town, but 
technically and physically for the production, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare, really. So, um, and we knew we had great faith in Mark Thompson, because he's our designer and a fantastic one. So we took everything he said seriously, and he did make the Prince Edward um, very intimate and has had many a theatre to do since. Um, what did it cost to open at the Prince, Prince Edward? Uh, just under three million pounds, uh, which was a kind of quite a high budget, but me medium high. It wasn't the highest in the West End at the moment, but it was quite high. And um, That's about five million bucks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything is much more expensive here on Broadway. Um, and always has been, <coughs> uh, ticket prices also higher. Um, and we opened the show with a, a kind of moderate advance of two million pounds, and it wasn't until we kind of opened and the word of mouth started that, uh, that the box office really began to pick up, even though we were quite happy with the two million at the time. <laughs> mm. um, How large is the cast now? Uh, there are about 30 of them. About 30 on stage. And did you start with that many? Yeah. Pretty much. At the West, on the West End, you started? Yes. So you grew from a workshop with, with a half a dozen people. You then went in great multiples yep. to get uh, to fill the stage of Sedford. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. And that, uh, that must have affected your budget in some way. Uh, no, that, yes. Uh, that, was all, that was always, yes. It's, but it's, it's uh, I have a very, uh, we have a very brilliant general manager in London, Andrew Trigas and Nina Lannan here. Uh, so they're very good on their running costs. Um, I mean, Mamma Mia recouped in London in 27 weeks with three million, or just under three million, um, which was great and um, <laughs> marvellous, in fact. And then we started making plans to, to take the show to other territories. But we'd never had plans before. I mean, everyone was just concentrating on London and, you know, that's that's where we were focused, really. Well, at what point did you know that you were this grand success in London that, that merited additional productions? Um, well, certainly not on opening night. Well, I think, I mean, the first preview was very exciting. And mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, our general manager saying to Bjorn, because the audience was marvelous, crazy, stood up, big standing ovation. And he said, listen, this is just a first preview audience. You'll never see this again. <laughs> and we were very, you know, relieved or thankful that every night they've been like that. So um, I think with the audience response and the box office response, we, we knew we could take it further. I mean, um, we opened the second booking period about six weeks after the opening night. And it was, the show was taking about half a million a day, pounds. But there was never any talk of going straight to Broadway after after London. Wasn't it? No. Oh no. Why? No, no. Why? Well, mainly because I was scared <laughs> uh, of what had happened to me with, with chess. With chess, right. And, Which uh, is a wonderful show, and it's still a mystery why it's not still running. By the way, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can. And we'll see it again sometime. I know sometime we're going to see chess. I know I we're going right. to see chess. Chess. Uh, chess was a show that. How did you Bjorn choose the theatres that you went into from London and into New York? How do you choose the theatres? Um, well, <laughs> well, first we Sometimes chose uh, Toronto. Yes. Toronto was as, the first as the next one. stop. 
Toronto was important. I mean, it, it happened that the Royal Alexander Theatre was a perfect theatre. I mean, it was intimate. It's an old Edwardian theatre. It was it's 1,400 seats. I mean, we always were looking for quite intimate theatres, and um, also they have to uh, be capable of um, fitting our sound equipment, which is quite complex. Um, but the Royal Alex in Toronto was perfect, and it was the perfect time. The creative team were free and available to work on the show, so that was our first toe in the water. And also Toronto, Canada, was warm towards ABBA. Um, so we started in Toronto for six months at the Royal Alex, and then that company was to tour into the United States, premiering in San Francisco um, six months later. And probably about two weeks, three weeks before we opened in Toronto, the box office was looking very good, and the kind of word on the street was very good, so we made a decision to stay in Toronto, that we would take the, the company that was about to open in Toronto as scheduled on the road into the States, but we'd create a new company to sit down in Toronto, which is still there and running successfully. We've just done the third audition process for the third company. Um, so we didn't intend to have a sit-down in Toronto. We intended just to be creating the U.S. tour. Judy, the financing of, of uh, uh, Toronto, was that the same, the original investors who had, who had invested in All, all our original investors from London followed, followed through with us. So they followed us to Toronto and the, and the U.S. tour. Are they separate entities, though, in each, each company? Was, is that a separate entity, or is there one blanket company that is producing uh, it's, financing? It's our company, uh, Bjorn Benny, Richard East, and my company, Little Star. Which well, is uh, you're the produ you're, you are producers, but are, are your investors investing? Uh, if, if Toronto had not, let's say Toronto's a huge success, as we know, but if, the, if in San Francisco it hadn't been successful, is that the same financing that put the show on in San Francisco that put it on in Toronto and the West End? Yeah. Right. So if it had not worked somewhere, of course, they might have jumped ship um, okay. somewhere along the way. And then Australia, where we opened in... Uh, uh, June of this year, but we um, have tried to get some of the investors to, you know, get lost. But they <laughs> 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 they just want to keep on and on and on. Answering Isabel's question, it, you know, it's never easy to find a theatre. People <coughs> always say, you know, why did they choose that theatre? I mean, they're not always available, and you always have a dream theatre. But we we have been very lucky. I mean, the Princess Theatre in Melbourne was a perfect theatre. We could have opened in Sydney, but but the theatre in Melbourne was a much better theatre to create the show from and for the creative and technical process. Um, and going on the road in the US, you have to be prepared for pretty much everything. So we'd gone from the small Royal Alex, intimate Royal Alex, into the huge Orpheum in San Francisco, which is about 2,200 seats, <coughs> and then on to the even huger Schubert <laughs> Theatre. Um, and again, Mark adapted his set with a traveling um, portable proscenium to make the uh, theater intimate. Um, and then the Winter Garden was, um, again, if we'd wanted to go straight from, straight from London to Broadway, there was no theater available at that time. And then as Toronto did well, the US tour was doing well, uh, the Winter Garden came free, and uh, General Schoenfeld offered it to us. 
We're very lucky again. Do you want to tell us how uh, the adjustment that you had to make for Linda in each venue as they, uh, as they grew or shrunk? Um, I think that I'm quite used, having done quite a bit of opera on the road, to getting people to just adapt to different spaces. And um, they adapt very quickly. Um, just we, we work very hard at creating a big energy for the space and an energy that's not dependent on this for the spoken side of it. Um, but you are mic'd. They are, th they are mic'd, but we really work from the basis that the speaking should, shouldn't be... I, I get incensed when I go and see a lot of musicals and you look at the stage and you don't actually know who's speaking because actors just aren't capable of giving the energy that, you know, people gave on the Winter Garden stage 30 years ago without any help at all and managed to fill it with their voices. So we do do a lot of work on um, we ought to be able to manage this. The songs obviously weren't written to be done without um, electronic help. Um, but it hasn't been too much of a well, problem. I think that you say the songs obviously needed amplification to, to, to have their impact. I think that uh, the first chord that struck when you're in the theater, uh, both the, the beginning of the show and at intermission, uh, it's, uh, I think Tommy rivals that about is the only other show that comes clear to my mind that uh, has that kind of excitement with that first chord that goes on. Uh, I think we'd, we'd, uh, we'd miss that. Uh, terribly if we if we didn't have that kind of amplification. I share your view. I think everybody does about not knowing who's speaking when uh, uh, when there was. I don't think you'd find that problem in, in, in Mamma Mia. Part of it has to do, I'm sure, with the direction, the focus, and the lighting. You know who's speaking I at all times, which is, a, again, a tribute to your production. I mean, the show has extraordinary sound design. I mean, really no other Broadway show has anything like it. Um, Bjorn and Benny and the sound designers have really paid a lot of attention to that. Um, the show has sound booths backstage where people are singing when they're not on stage. It's, it is the most sophisticated sound system I think ever done on Broadway. I it's a French system uh, that hasn't been used here before, I, I don't think. Yeah. Hasn't been used for theatre at all before we d did it in, in London. It fills the theatre nicely. I, I yeah. can say that. It fills the theatre nicely without that, that distortion sometimes. Get, oh, I have to ask you a question. The sound that we hear on stage, uh, to possibly untrained ear like mine, comes very close to what I hear Abba singing in terms of that, that, that yeah. female dominance. Yes. And is that designed by you or is that <laughs> a happenstance? <laughs> no, it's, the it's three women. designed. I, <laughs> you know, I was thinking about arrangements in the, the early days. Should we write new arrangements for these songs? Or, and I came to the conclusion that whatever we do, we start off by doing them as they were to see whether that works in the theatre or not. And, and of course, we used to be five guys sitting around playing to our, you know, some chords and never writing anything down, ever. So I had to give the multi-track tapes to uh, a, a guy who actually physically wrote down what everyone played on all of those songs. So when you hear the bass player um, at the theatre now, he's playing exactly the same thing as uh, the one did 25 years ago. And that goes for the backing vocals and for everything. So it's true, what you hear is, are the original arrangements. Mm. 
it, and it, I think maybe that, that, that was a great decision that you made because it, it really enhances the, uh, the evening for, for the audience. They, there have been a few little changes here and there, yeah. but uh, for but dramatic reasons. But we're hearing ABBA. We're not, yeah. uh, that's exactly what we're hearing yeah. when we're in the theatre, no question about it. Mm. I think it's very satisfying as well sometimes when something starts off and um, you're hearing Mamma Mia because you're hearing, say, in When It Takes All, you're hearing Donna singing. And then there's that need for it to kind of become full-blown ABBA as well. And it, and it works so fluidly. You don't sort of feel there's a jolt between... Mamma Mia, the musical, and Abba, the song, you know, it, it all kind of flows in. But I do myself feel, whew, I love it when it goes into the big crescendo there mm. like that. Well, I want to get back to the uh, money, 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 as a matter of fact, so as not to hurt you. I think maybe we'll eventually get to showing a clip of money, 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 but let's talk more about the money, money, money. That, uh, before the clip. Uh, <laughs> yes, before the clip, before the clip, and then that, that, we'll use that for emphasis if you can. Okay. But uh, uh, money, money, money was I, uh, was that one of your biggest successes? I can't say. I don't. Know. <laughs> you can't say, or you won't say. One thing I know: there was never any problem raising money for Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant the, the song. Why? Well, because everyone wanted to be in. How did they well, know they about didn't it? at the beginning? Okay. Well. <laughs> Once success had been achieved, everybody wants to get, uh, get a yeah. part of it, of course. Yeah. From the very but beginning? No, uh, but I, th I think that Judy said... better than I do, I think. <laughs> she, had, she, had, she struggled to get it on at first, but uh, at least with the... Well, uh, as I said earlier, Universal were very much part of that, even though that wasn't all the financing. Um, uh, but once they were convinced and in... Um, then it was much easier. And it, it's worked very well because it's been a kind of, it isn't a traditional subscription, you know, because this was, it wasn't open to other investors from other shows. It was just uh, a kind of select group, really, that took a risk, I mean, took the risk, and then took the risk to go on into Toronto and Australia and all the other shows. Um, so that, that worked quite well, really. We, ha we have gathered some other investors on the way, um, and people have been very keen to invest, which is, which is nice. <laughs> well, uh, are, do you, are you able to use the proceeds uh, from uh, the successful productions to finance, or are you taking new financing each time? Every, every production is, is set up separately and, and every production we are obliged to bring in our original investors, so unless they actually drop out. Oh, so they're not cross, in that case, they're not cross-collateralized? Oh no, none no. of them are cross-collateralized. Uh -huh. They're all individual, but the same investors. Right. Hmm. Well, now you've had successes around the country. You can get to Chicago. Uh, you've had successes around the country here. At some point, you made a decision that uh, I guess you got beyond quieted enough to think that it was okay to try Broadway. Absolutely. I, I mean, I felt we were sort of closing in, right. uh, <laughs> and we were to come to this city with a reputation, which is uh, so different from the one. I mean, people here didn't know about chess at all, hmm. and we were naive and stupid to do it. But so this time, the strategy was to close in slowly and build up a reputation. To start a word of mouth, which has always yeah. been our greatest marketing tool. There you go. Um, no, but but it was it was a very unusual approach, which paid off big time. Um, the idea of using Toronto almost as a tryout for Broadway in North America, 
was was extraordinary. And I don't think anyone has really done that before. Have been out for a year before you come to Broadway in North America with a major musical um, was was an extraordinary strategy, and it really worked. Mm. I mean, I when I first came to marketing meetings here, when you know it was going to be Toronto and then the tour, everyone was saying, "Oh, you can never tour in the States. You're not a Broadway branded show." Adrian didn't say that. I didn't say that. But <laughs> other people were saying it, and you know, because the marketing ploys here are very much about you know, award-winning and Broadway-branded, and we didn't have any of those things. Uh, we had a success in London and um, ABBA, um, which again everyone said, but nobody knows ABBA in America, uh, <laughs> which we um, soon discovered as soon as we opened in San Francisco that, that they did. Uh, <laughs> big time. I think the other thing that happened too, um, there was a lot of advice uh, to not play cities in the northeast around the same time as the Broadway opening. There's a great feeling, you know, we shouldn't be in Boston at the same time that we're opening on Broadway. Well, the show is playing in Boston right now, breaking records there, and I think it's going to break records here. But so there was concern, there was concern that if you were successful in Boston, uh, it would uh, slant the reviewers or the audience? No, what no, was the concern? I, I, I think it was it would, that it would eat away at the audience. Exactly. It would diminish the audience coming from the Northeast to see the show. It would diminish setting up the Broadway production. It would... Um, well, if Boston got negative reviews, it might have had a, right, an right. effect. But, but I think the idea also that it would divert media attention. Now that's, I think, I can understand that. It, when did you come into it, Adrian? I became involved about six months after the London opening. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been overseeing the productions that have happened since then, focusing on Broadway. And I'd say the real challenge has been to keep the word out about the show without hyping it, without overhyping it, let, letting other people say the good words about it. We made a very conscious effort to get the American critics over to see it in London, to get their feeling about it there, to get their input there. Uh, but the campaign has been very, it's been very bold, but it hasn't been at all hypey. It's just de you know, ads that say the show's coming, not ads that say it's absolutely brilliant before we opened here. I think it's been very su it was very successful uh, doing it that way. I, I know how often you can uh, set up a critic to, you can challenge a critic if right. you bring in the, in the quotes from, from elsewhere and you bring in the long success of, of, of the multiple productions on it. Uh, who can tell me if, uh, how ABBA uh, fared in terms of its, uh, its popularity in the States as compared to elsewhere? Well, in the 70s, to be successful here, you physically had to be here. I mean, all the groups toured America, you know, six months a year. And they went to radio stations and sucked up to them, and they did all these things that, that was, were, were considered necessary in those times. We were not prepared to do that. That, that's a fact. I mean, we didn't come here very often. We only toured once, and we had 25 gigs or something in the States. But we had uh, 15 top 20s. So we did very, very well here as well. Not as well as in the rest of the world. Mm. Well, but your records were selling here. Oh, yeah, millions, yes. But uh, it was kind of curious. Every, uh, everybody knew how popular... ABBA was, but <coughs> around, better around the world, and I think the material is certainly totally acceptable to, to us here. Uh, I, I promised uh, talking about money, 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 so I think that maybe 
um, before we take our break, maybe we should get a, a, a look at a clip of Money, 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 and then we can maybe pick up again on some more money if we uh, can. Yeah, sure we can. So why don't we go to the videotape on Money, Money, Money and see what it was like. Right now, we have to break, and while they turn our cameras around or whatever they do, so you can get up, and stretch, turn around, and come right back to your seats, so we can go on with exploring what makes Mamma Mia so fantastically, monumentally successful. Thank you very much for being here. Don't go far away. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on Production. Before we turn to our discussion, I would like to emphasize that even though these seminars and our annual Tony Awards for Excellence in the Theatre are the most visible of our activities, they are only a small part of the work we do for the community. As a long-established charity, we serve both theater and the community with our year-round programs. The Wing works to develop new audiences for the theater and for a broadening of young minds. We bring the magic of theater to those who otherwise not know its power. Programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its 10-year history has enabled almost 100,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to the theater by bringing professionals into schools through workshops as a part of our theater and school program. Additionally, with our hospital program dating back to World War II when the Wing created the legendary stage door canteens, we continue to entertain patients at hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities in the New York area with volunteer talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world we bring live entertainment, hope, and joy to those who are not able to get out and attend the theater. Our grants and scholarship programs provide essential funding where it is so needed today to help launch the productions in the not-for-profit world. We take pride in the work we do and remain grateful to our members and everyone whose contributions 
make the work at the American Theatre Wing possible. Our work strengthens the ties between the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this great effort. I would now like to go on to the second part of our program. Roy? Thank you, Isabel. Well, I think we left off with money, money, money. Uh, so maybe it's a good idea we pick up there. I think what we'd like to do is understand the cost of bringing in this juggernaut to uh, Broadway. For example, uh, how much did it cost? Uh, it cost $10 million, maybe a few cents under, uh, to be exact. And that's independent, then, of the, of the of pre-Broadway uh, com companies that have been running simultaneously. This is a sep just to bring it to Broadway. That's from yeah. inception. It cost ten million dollars. Yes. And uh, and then what? And you and you capitalized it at, at somewhere in that neighborhood. Cap capitalized at ten million dollars, including advertising, everything. And a contingency. And a contingency. Um, the operating costs are between three hundred and sixty and just over four hundred. It was very modest in. in uh, uh, what, now, what can you possibly gross? Uh, over nine hundred thousand a week. So your investors, your investors are going to do very nicely. Well, we hope. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> we always hope. Now, how do you share these proceeds with your investors? Um, well, of course, as I explained, our investors are originated in in London. Even though we do have some American investors uh, for Broadway. Um, but the traditional deal in the UK is a 60-40 split. 60, Who gets the 60? 60 to the investors, 40 to the producers. And we use the same, uh, we mirrored the same deal here. So Very gracious. Very, very yeah. generous, I thought. Yeah. Right. Traditionally <laughs> being at 50-50. Yeah. Huh. So it's exactly the same. And uh, so, yes, hopefully, hopefully <coughs> we will recoup... Uh, within a reasonable time, about 40 weeks. Could be less, could be more. Um, we did, we recouped, uh, as I explained in London, we recouped in 27 weeks. We recouped on schedule for Toronto and the US tour as well. Um, and uh, hopefully we will in New York. So it's costing about twice as much to do the show uh, in, uh, Broadway than it did in the, in the West End. Yes, and I think that is that's just because costs are, are higher here. Um, I don't. There is. It's the same same production. I well, think we don't have. We have the same size orchestra and cast. Um, it's, it's mounting. Mounting it costs twice mounting as much. Mounting it costs. It yeah. I think advertising. Advertising is huge. Marketing and advertising is is enormous everywhere. And here you have to invest in advertising and marketing. To, to get your return ready. Even though we haven't actually gone to television advertising for Broadway yet, so we made a bit of a saving, saving there. We've put that aside for a rainy day. But you have a, you have a, a million dollars set aside for your advertising? Yes. In your budget? Just about a million dollars? Yeah. Again, uh, well, how are you spending it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it's been a very modest campaign. Um, you know, there has been a some very traditional moves like full page ads <coughs> in the New York Times quite early on. Um, there's been quite a lot of radio because obviously the music is very identifiable and very important to people. But it's, it's not been an extreme campaign. And I think this goes back to 
not the false modesty, but the practicality of not getting overexposed, not <coughs> hyping too early. I think we've seen a lot of big shows come in that had a lot of exposure out of town, and I mentioned this, a show I like, Ragtime, which by the time it came to New York had been so heavily advertised and so hyped that there was almost a feeling of deja vu. People felt they'd seen the show already because the marketing had been so extreme up front. And I think the whole advertising budget has been reflected with we've had a very steady presence, but not an over-the-top presence um, for you know, the last six months. But it, it has not been extreme at all. Do you know if your uh, record sales have uh, in this country <coughs> have uh, responded as uh, favorably as the... Oh, uh, yes. Yes, so they have. So what uh, is e Every city the, uh, the tour has gone through, there's a marked difference. So would it start And as, as it happens, I'm going to collect an award today. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> it's, it's Abba Gold has sold over 20 million, which is not bad for a group that died 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very good. It strikes me as a curious turnaround. It was uh, the Abba who, started, who uh, created the show and... Uh, responsible for the success of the show, and now the show is bringing ABBA back up. So uh, I don't know where, where it goes after that. Perhaps oh, I'll we'll have to think of something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think, yes, Mamma Mia is now promoting ABBA, I think. <laughs> yes, that's a, uh, But um, we had a lot of support from Universal, who are ABBA's record company as well, in the marketing and advertising. Um, and uh, that was incredibly helpful and worked well for us in the, the budget as well with all the campaigns. Mm -hmm. Well, now, talk about the cast itself, if you would, Philida. You don't have any, what uh, we would say, household names in the, in the cast, but you've carefully selected your, your companies. Yes, it's quite important uh, to us not to have um, stars in the show, um, which might seem perverse, but mm -hmm. in a way, um, we don't, we're lucky not, not to need a star. We've got really ABBA as our star. Um, and we've, um, we do, the auditions are very painstaking and we're looking for people with what we think of as the, um, the Mamma Mia factor, which, um, you know, you may be able to sing, dance and act brilliantly, but if you haven't got the Mamma Mia factor, then you're, you know, it's, you're out on your ear, so. Could you define the Mamma Mia factor? We <laughs> <laughs> may have people who are, uh, this is going to be a long running show, we have people be, who may want to audition. I think it's this finding people with the spirit of Catherine's book. It's some um, people with a very good sense of humor, big personality, um, and um, people that don't necessarily fit into that um, body beautiful, worked out, um, I don't know, legs up to here, um, <laughs> legs up to here. Um, you know, uh, people who might not be able to get seen for a lot of Broadway musicals, actually. And we're looking for actors. You know, we, we love actors who can sing um, rather than what we think of as, we, we have a, a thing we put on our um, sheets when we're auditioning, a bit MT, which means a bit musical theatre, which is a, neg a negative against somebody. Uh -huh. So you're really, you're really looking for people who are, are straight-out performers and not uh, uh, professional performers, but not necessarily musical theatre. They're folks, as it were. Mm -hmm. Our dream is a sort of an aging rock star who's just um, 
discover that he can act and I only got the one track on each album, so that says it all. <laughs> How did you find your cast in America? Again, it was a really long process. We worked with um, fantastic casting director Tara Rubin and David Grinrod, who's our English casting director, who came over to um, sort of do diplomatic relations. And um, we saw hundreds of people, um, thousands maybe. And, um, you know, we saw some uh, people with huge Broadway experience. And we've got, um, you know, a couple of those in the show. Um, Karen Mason, Judy Kay, who really have, you know, some people would see as very, um, very musical theatre, but they've definitely got the Mamma Mia factor. And um, it was just, a, it's just a very um, long-winded thing. There's a lot of arguments amongst us. We're who always fighting. Now, who was there for your auditions? Um, your team. Well, the musical director Martin Kosh, um, the choreographer Anthony Van Last, and his associate. Um, and then when we get down to the real sort of final auditions, Judy, Bjorn, um, and myself. Catherine, you're left out of this? Yeah, yeah I'd be useless. <coughs> I haven't got a clue. <laughs> 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 Everyone looks marvellous to me. Uh, I don't you know a thing. Uh, certainly, would, uh, everybody is sensitive to that, have to portray the characters that you've created. Though. Well, fortunately, I'm working with a team that absolutely knows what to do. They, they know who the characters are, so they know exactly who, who's right. I've, I've no, never seen anybody that I've thought, oh my God, why did they choose them? One of the things that's really key to it is that unlike a lot of musicals where they're looking for clones of their original, you know, the shape of the original person, we absolutely aren't. We're trying to all the time turn the thing on its head and be open to, you know, whether it's a, uh, you know, a multiracial idea or somebody who's just the, the complete opposite of the last person who played the role. Um, it's about really trying to make the thing, to reinvent it every time and get a cast that own the material as if it's never been done before. And it's disastrous if we try and kind of copycat the last, uh, the last version of it. Adrian, how does it affect you that um, their featured performance primarily in the, in the cast in terms of marketing the show along the way? Well, as Phil has said, I mean, <coughs> ABBA is very much the star. And also Catherine's story, the, the love story, the, um, the mother-daughter relationship is a huge selling point. Um, this is a, a very feel-good happy, positive musical. And that may say sound very Pollyanna, but it's a, it's a really strong selling point when most big musicals tend to be incredibly gloomy. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you can't negate that factor at all. And we make stars out of people in shows. The exposure and the reviews they get, they become stars. And, and uh, also, as Philda said, we do have people who have great Broadway pedigree who are getting that attention that you'd expect to get. Um, but no, I, th I think it's a very good point. You don't necessarily need to have a star in a musical to make it very successful. And our mother and daughter are making their Broadway debut, which is very yeah. exciting. Well, Louise Peter. Which gives you some more company. Yeah, which, which is great. I mean, we have, you know, we have two extraordinary Canadians in the lead. Um, and that's, that's exciting. I'd well, like to go back to the nitty gritty. Do you have a lot of investors? Do you have a whole group of investors? Who do you call upon? No, it's not a huge group. It's 
probably kind of uh, up to about eight investors, main investors. But then also on Broadway, we have uh, some Broadway investors. In Australia, we have some Australian investors. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it's quite a quite a tight knit investment group. Yes, you don't have the uh, $10,000 uh, investor no. in your show and a collection of those. You have solid people. The initial investment was your, your original company and then you've augmented it uh, for financing in each of the places you've been. Yes, mm -hmm. we set up a limited company for every show. Before we, um, we, we break for questions, uh, I just want to be able to thank you for the music and on behalf of all of us here, and I think that uh, that should be a roll cue for, I think, for our studio there, so maybe we can get a look at Thank You for the Music before we go into the first question. Uh, do you suppose that they've got that ready for us? Uh, that's a... Um, uh Thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Who can live without it? I ask in all honesty. What would life do? Without a song or dance, what are we? So I say thank you for the music. Our first question. Good afternoon. I'm Darren Polito. Uh, this question is for Phyllida. Um, due to the popularity and the familiarity of ABBA songs, uh, was most of the cast already familiar with them, and how did that affect the rehearsal process? Did it make it any easier? Or? In Europe, everybody knows the songs really well, and uh, so the cast were very familiar with them and became addicted to them very quickly. <laughs> and. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that uh, it's necessary to know the songs to be able to uh, work on or enjoy the show. No, I think it's... But, but, but happily, most of the people we've worked with have um, been very keen on ABBA. But you didn't look for it. In other words, you weren't looking for people. As you no. Say. They weren't musical theatre people, but they also were not ABBA fans that you were looking for. But people who are able to sing, it is a different style of singing, isn't it? Mm. And maybe you should talk a little bit about yes. that, because you're very that that, that was something that I, I considered very, very important in the beginning, the outset, that the uh, we should use the pop idiom that we and, and every other pop group in the world does where MT, as we said earlier, musical theatre, sometimes can make that very difficult for people to sing that way. So everyone that comes in, every, every principal especially, has to go through that process of, of, of finding and knowing what pop idiom is. Uh, and I if they can't, then, then they're impossible. What is it? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's something you hear. You know, it's... Uh, it's Listen to, a, to an album, listen to one of our songs, and you can hear it sung that way. And then you can hear the difference when someone from too much musical theatre sings it. So the, the, it's just an instinct and a feeling. Mm. I know exactly what it is, but how to explain it, I don't. I mean, singing on the beat is one of the things you're very... 
Oh yes, yes. Fanatical about, aren't you? <laughs> in, <laughs> in some places, yes. Some some songs like uh, a disco song or a rock song or, or a pop song, you need to sing on the beat and and be very 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 exact. Whereas a musical art, is, a theatre artist, usually, you know, are dragging it behind <laughs> and, and and sort of doing what they, what they like with it, <coughs> and that's the difference. Sometimes they can do that here as well, but not all the time, which they want to do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but did you find that it was more difficult casting in America for those peop people? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's been the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, first of all, I want to say I am a huge ABBA fan. My idea of heaven is being in a car and listening to ABBA music. My sister saw the show in Boston, and she, was, she asked me, how come the songs were listed alphabetically and not in show order? Adrian, are you <laughs> responsible for that? Well, Judy, you should answer that. Um, well, that's because in London, in the first week of previews, we traditionally um, listed in the playbill, or program as it's called in London, the songs in scene order, as they always are uh, in a musical program. But we discovered in the first few previews that the audience was singing along before the number started <laughs> on stage. So we decided we should list them alphabetically. <laughs> has, that, uh, has it reduced them, uh, the singing? I mean, they're instantly recognizable. No, I think it's given more fun and pleasure to the audience because they can guess the songs. And I mean, even the, the uh, musical director, when he's conducting, we've had to take off the title of the song on his score because the audience in the front row can see it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he knows we're still <laughs> uh, It does make it a little awkward for uh, someone who isn't totally familiar with album music to be looking there and saying, now, which number is this? And you have to run down the playbill and say, ah, there's the one. It says honor there. That's the one I know. Then it's <laughs> but it's, as Judy says, it's part of the fun to guess what, what's going to come now, uh, you know. Uh, so I think it would be wrong to give that away probably makes it difficult for the critics to look for what is the last number so I can gather my things and rush out <laughs> 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 of course they're cheated out of they're cheated out of a what a 10 minute encore at least which is a whose idea was the encore uh, the extended encore that we have uh, in the show? I don't know it's grown I have <laughs> to say <laughs> <laughs> We were always going to have reprise a couple of the songs, but we have a little surprise at the very end, which th there was a Puritan faction, which in fact was Bjorn and I, I think, who were not going to allow it to grow to the excesses it has done, but we finally Gave lightened in. up. Yes. <laughs> well, I think the audience is grateful for that, uh, that con the mini-concert that we get. Yes, Jim. Hi, my name is Gerard Mon. I have a question for your wonderful press agent, Adrian Brian Brown. Actually, a comment first. Adrian Brian Brown, will you add an A to the, <laughs> another <laughs> word with an A to it <laughs> at the end so that you can become other? I'll work uh, on it. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, uh, I saw the show in London, and in London, every uh, week on Sunday night, the clubs have, one of the clubs has an other night. Are you thinking of anything like that for marketing and promotion? No, I mean, th there will be a lot of promotional activities happening, and they have been happening on the tour around the country. Um, because there is, you know, there is a huge ABBA fan base, uh, which is not you know, the primary audience. The primary audience is very smart theatre goers who buy their tickets now. But, but, <laughs> but there are huge um, ABBA fan clubs all over the country, and there are people who love ABBA music. So, you know, it's it's very much part of the campaign to raise awareness that way too. 
Um, this is for the panel. Are there any differences between the various productions? And what are they? We work on the text. I mean, the, uh, the idea is to make the production very personal to the territory we're in. So um, when the show opened in Toronto, we'd worked on it to um, establish it that, that the three women, the three uh, Donna and the Dynamos, came from Canada. They came from Toronto. Um, and then it was reworked again for Australia, and it's been reworked again for Broadway. We want the people of the city that the show's playing in to feel that it's their show. So it's, it's not a British show that you'll be seeing. It's a New York show. I have a question for the panel. Where do you go from here? Is there a life after Mamma Mia for you? <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. What, what's your next project? Well, Bor I, I think that, uh, Bjorn, you can uh, tell well, about I life know we know about. Right in the middle of reviving chess, actually. Uh, we'll be doing that in Swedish this time in, in uh, Stockholm early next year. Had it never been in... Uh, no, it's never been in Sweden. And do you usually play uh, in Swedish? Uh, Mamma Mia? No. There. Mamma Mia, if it ever comes to Sweden, I think has to be translated. Or uh -huh. it can come for a short run on a tour. Right. But with chess, the object is to look upon it as a full production, but also as a workshop. Because if it works in Stockholm, it probably works everywhere else. We have revised the story, I should add. That's why we're doing it, because we have a, quite a few changes in the story. But it's so that's what I'm doing at the moment. But it certainly was a, yeah, a very success. Certainly was a uh, worthy of more success than it met in yeah. New York, and I think we're yeah, that's what I feel yet. too. So I, I yeah. don't want to give it up yet. Well, yeah, I think you're right in that. I think we all share that view that you're right. Great. In that. Folina, what's on your platter? Um, well. This Wagner's ring cycle. <laughs> but, uh, Seems very logical. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually it's another story about lost parents, so it is. Really <laughs> um, and I hope to go on being, you know, involved with Mamma Mia for um, longer, a lot longer. Maybe not, you know, directing these big uh, first-class productions, but um, there's there's life in it yet, isn't there? Where will you do the ring so. cycle? At the English National Opera uh -huh. in London. Does it? Does it? Um, how did it affect when you, you, move, you personally, when you move from something as uh, the classics to ABBA to the ring cycle, how, in, in terms of, did, did one energize the other, or do you, do you, do you just automatically switch it's gears? It's the same. It really is the same thing. Um, it's just, you know, making stories and trying to help, yeah, help the performers. Um, it's not really a different world, apart from the electronic help. Right. But it's the same magic of the it's theater it's in, the in same any one of those yeah. for you. Yes, right. and all right. of us who are working on Mamma Mia, we're all, we've, we've come from, um, as Catherine was saying at the beginning, the world of subsidized theater, not commercial theater. Um, so the colleagues we're working, working with on Mamma Mia, they're all part of that um, sort of so-called straight theater and opera world. So in that sense, it feels quite uh, continuous. But the opera world doesn't look disdainfully upon you when they learn that you've just come from <laughs> ABBA. They're very jealous. They, <laughs> they're, they're, they're all in awe of it. They, yeah. they love it, yes. And, uh, and the ABBA people, uh, they must be terribly respectful when they know that you've just done something classic. For about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think less of. 
Well, I, your future, is there a, can you foresee a future uh, beyond Amma at this point? Have you got yes. time to see one? Um, not at the moment. It's a big Mamma Mia future, um, which I'm very happy with, because we we're going to be opening a second US tour in February, so there'll be two tours on Broadway. There'll be six first-class productions by then, and then the end of next year, we'll be working on foreign language licenses with Japan and Holland, and hopefully more after that. So um, there will be other projects, and Catherine and I have talked about films and other musicals and things. And actually, it's quite funny, because one thing Catherine always says is, if we're going to do a musical again, can I write the book first? <laughs> uh, Adrian, I don't think it's fair to ask you what's on your party. You're no, the largest. It's easy. I will never work on anything else again. <laughs> <laughs> You are the largest press office in, in New York City. As I said, well, I'll never work at anything. <laughs> well, and one thing I'm sure you're going to say is that it's the best show. It is absolutely the best show I've ever worked on. And, and, uh, and Catherine? I'm doing a couple of screenplays at the moment. So Pardon? I'm doing a couple of screenplays at the moment, so uh, I've moved away from theatre a bit. Is there a screen version of uh, ABBA on the horizon at any point? There's been a lot of interest, but we're not taking it any further at the moment. We're so concentrated on getting the first-class productions up, and that's where our kind of heart and focus is. But there has certainly been Hollywood interest. But I'm very old-fashioned when it comes to that. I think that uh, a musical should have its life and then um, perhaps become film, not before. Well, Once again, I have to interrupt you. This has been such a wonderfully exciting panel, and I thank you so much for being here. This has been an American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theater, and our panel today has been on the wonderful production, Mamma Mia, the exciting musical that is now on Broadway. And on our panel, the people that made it all happen. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here. This is a, the American Theater Wing Seminar on working in the theater. It's coming to you from the center of the University of New York and Broadway. And I want to thank everybody again for being here. Thank you so much. You, I was.